Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, June the 7th, 2023. We're back to talking about America and one of the old subjects in America, the division between town and country, between rich and poor. We've done lots of shows about it. The standard narrative is one that we've heard many times before, like from uh, Kerry Arsenault, um, whose book Mill Town, Reckoning with What Remains, talks about this dramatic division between the poverty of small towns and the countryside and the big wealthy cities. Um, her friend, uh, Dale Maharidge, who inspired actually Bruce Springsteen, uh, one of his albums, uh, had a book out a couple of years ago, Fucked at Birth, Recalibrating the American Dream for the 2020s. He put it about as crudely as he could. Uh, and we've explored these themes in all sorts of different ways. We even did a show with one expert on the rural urban divide in Japan, Richard McCarthy, who has a new book out, Kuni, A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban-Rural Reconnection, to figure out what the Japanese have to teach the Americans about reconnecting the urban and the rural world. But not everybody agrees with this narrative. Um, Last year, I did a show with a, a New Hampshire politician, Chloe Maxim, um, who believes that Democrats in particular, progressives need to start listening to rural America. Uh, she has a book out, Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. Uh, the Maxim thesis is, I think, is in many ways uh, one developed by my guest today, Elizabeth Currid Halkett, who has a new book out, it's out today, The Overlooked Americans, The Resilience of Our Rural Towns and What It Means for America. Elizabeth teaches at USC. She's just moved house. Uh, and uh, she has this rather controversial thesis. Elizabeth, when did you begin to realize that the the standard narrative was wrong, at least in your view, in terms of this profound division between rural and urban in America and the standard coastal elite take that um, things were rather bad on the rural American front. You know, it was, it's, first of all, it was a great question. Um, yeah, I grew up in small town America. I, um, I was born in West Virginia to Irish immigrant parents and we hopped from there to Pittsburgh for a moment. And then ultimately my mother took a job in rural Pennsylvania. And, you know, so this is my whole existence until I was 18 years old. I lived in a small town in Pennsylvania, population 4,000, 5,000. And then I, you know, hopped around the country to cities and ultimately ended up in Los Angeles. It was really the post-Trump era where I started thinking there's more to this story. Um, it, it was because when Trump did win the White House, and many people were shocked, including myself, um, that uh, people, the conversation was around how rural America was really angry, uh, that they were 
you know, seeking some sort of revenge that they had felt left behind in the global economic system. And I thought, this doesn't sound like the people I grew up with. Um, it doesn't sound at all like the people I know. And, you know, I'm a social scientist, so I understand that I had at this point in time, the observation of my hometown and my own lived experience, but it wasn't necessarily everyone's experience, but it did make for an intriguing project to explore. And, and that's when I started realizing that my experience was, was aligned with a lot of other uh, Americans who lived in small town America. Uh, one uh, Yale University um, academic suggests that your new book is a, and I'm quoting him, uh, Philip Gorski, a powerful antidote to the drop-in diner interview. We all know those diner, those drop-in style diner interviews pursued by perhaps journalists of elite publications on the coast, the Washington Post, the New York Times of the world. In your view, Elizabeth, are those drop-in diner interviews, are they simply confirming what the American elites on the coast already thought? I mean, yes and no. Sometimes they seem more sympathetic. But I think what they fail to do is get the deep story. You know, um, I mean, this is a phrase that Arlie Hochschild uses in her work on um, the Tea Party in Louisiana. Yeah, and Arlie's been mm -hmm. on the show, and I, actually, I know her. She's a Ber or she was a Berkeley neighbor, and Adam Hochschild, her her husband. Oh yeah, there. I I don't know Adam personally. Um, I know his work. He's a genius, yeah. as is she, and she's she's a lovely human. Um, but I I felt I think when you you the way you present it, a lot of the work that's been done, I feel has been very um, superficial. And so I think going in there and actually spending time, like hours and hours with folks and asking them profound questions, but also asking them really mundane questions, you get a much deeper understanding of people. And I, I think that that's along with, and I think that um, what Phil Gorski may have also been alluding to is that along with the interviews, I spent a lot of time with data studying various different jobs, employment, media, you know, median income, health, all sorts of different data associated with both rural and urban America and drawing some conclusions. It's my understanding, Elizabeth, that you think that many Americans have taken certain socioeconomic cultural truths about rural America from Appalachia and West Virginia and applied it more universally. I mean, given that as you said at the beginning, your mother was originally from West Virginia. What is it about West Virginia that makes it such a, a cliche of, of, this, um, of this underclass, this angry under rural class in America? So one thing that is very clear is that places like West Virginia, Kentucky, parts of the Deep South are the places where that story likely emerges. Um, you know, when we think about the opioid epidemic, we think about rural America. But if you actually look at CDC data, it it's deeply affects West Virginia, Kentucky, a tiny bit of Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, and um, those are, and New Mexico. Um, those are the kind of, and there are a couple other states, but those are the kind of hotbeds. Whereas if you live in Iowa or Wyoming, you have actually less mortality per capita for opioids than you do in California or New York. And you know, this is just an example, but 
what I'm saying is that I think we extrapolate a lot from some, um, you know, small number of rural states that have had a lot of trouble. And that then becomes the story of rural America rather than taking a look at all of rural America and seeing that there's a lot of really vibrant, prosperous places uh, in rural America that aren't in the same space as West Virginia. But the West Virginia story is very compelling as is the Kentucky story. It's very compelling. It is a, a, a place that needs dire intervention. Um, but it's not the same thing as living in, in other parts of rural America. That's the thing is I think they've been conflated rather than a kind of more bespoke approach. Are you challenging the work of people like Angus Deaton? Of course, he's been on the show. I visited him at Princeton. He, he and his wife uh, wrote the book Death of Despair and he won the Nobel Prize. Or, or do you think that the work of people like Deaton is used by journalists and other cultural commentators to make these broader, more generalized and, and, and politically comfortable conclusions? I would say it is more the latter. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to engage in conjecture because I don't have a list right in front of me. Deaton and Case's work is incredible. It's so important and it's not mutually exclusive to what I'm arguing at all. I think they have a real through line to understanding why we were seeing what we, I mean, you know, you know, the backstory of course, is that they see that we have a disproportionate number of deaths and why is that? And that there are huge numbers of people that seem to have through either firearms or drugs, either, you know, suicide or overuse, accidental overuse, um, you know, end up dead. And, you know, I don't think they're wrong um, in terms of what they're seeing. I mean, the data is not lying at all. Um, I just think that it's not all of rural America. And I'm not sure they would argue that are either. I mean, I think um, I think Case, um, she had a really interesting piece in The New York Times a few months ago about the importance of education and that being a divide in this country, which I wouldn't disagree with her. I think it matters more in some places than others, if that makes sense. One of the interesting things about your work is that um, you're also the author of a particularly intriguing book. It was very successful, The Sum of Small Things, A Theory of the Aspirational Class. So you're, uh, just as this new book is a kind of sociology of what you call the overlooked Americans, your last book was a sociology of uh, the people who do that overlooking, uh, the people on the coasts. How do these two sociological investigations connect with one another? So the thing I have been really fascinated with for quite some time, um, first in the context of simply culture and the production of culture, my first book was The Warhol Economy. And then really thinking about how culture is reappropriated, how it's valid, you know, how You also did Starstruck, you, yeah. you've been very busy. <laughs> well, I like to write. It gives me a lot of joy. So, um, And you're one of those um, unusual American academics who is able to take your specialized knowledge and write in a broad, interesting way to a, a non-academic audience. So congratulations on that. That's a, that's a lovely thing for you to say. Thank you very much. Um, that, thank you. Um, I, uh, I, 
I'm very passionate about this idea of culture, how we produce it, how we consume it, how we assign it value. And so with um, my previous book, uh, I was very interested in the way in which culture, and particularly in the context of cultural capital, as in think about culture as a resource, um, you know, your education, where you went to university or whether you didn't go to university, what you read, what you watch, um, it becomes the currency in which you interact with other people. And one of the things that was really clear to me in that context was that certain culture is really associated with social mobility. So if you think about your like, you know, a, the, the essays to apply to an Ivy League university or its equivalent. And, you know, what does that look like? Well, I play piano and I'm level 10 and I speak three languages and I volunteer here and I've traveled the world. And this is all a part of one's cultural capital, which then gets one into a world where you can attain more cultural capital and greater social mobility. And this is sort of the world of the meritocrat. All right. You're preaching. In other words, you're <laughs> preaching to the converted. Yes. So the, the, exactly. And it becomes quite tribal. And of course, you know, and I'm not a social sociologist by training, so I'd be careful not to say that cultural and social capital are the same thing, but your cultural capital, it, it provides the stickiness to your, to your social capital, to your networks. It's what allows you to converse and engage and say you're one of a certain group. So this idea of cultural capital really intrigued me. And when I studied rural America, what I wanted to understand, along with, you know, why did they vote the way they did? Um, why do we have this perception of them? Was why do we perceive a divide in this country? And this became more perplexing to me as I looked at data from the General Social Survey from the University of Chicago, which surveys wide array of opinions. And, and it looked at like urban and rural Americans shared a lot of the same values um, and beliefs when I looked at industrial data and I could see that rural America for the most part, of course, the exceptions are there, were really benefiting from the knowledge economy and that they're kind of the measures in which we, um, you know, decide on kind of well-being, you know, medium, uh, median household income, uh, home ownership, uh, you know, um, whether someone is employed, that they were looking pretty good for rural America on the whole. And so what I realized was very slippy, but very powerful, was that rural America had different cultural capital than urban America. And it wasn't that they didn't have cultural capital. That was the mistake for people to assume that because they weren't reading the New York Times or they weren't going to Yale that they didn't have cultural capital. They do. Everyone has cultural capital. But that their cultural capital didn't matter as much. And it was looked down upon. And, you know, whether it was religion or being very, very locally engaged, um, that these things just weren't as appealing and weren't a part of the kind of meritocratic view of culture. It, it seems to me, and I, we, we've talked about this a lot on the show, perhaps too much, Elizabeth, um, that the, the paradox, and America's full of paradoxes, but the central paradox in America is a country founded on its supposedly democratic egalitarian values is now profoundly inegalitarian. So when Tocqueville came to America in the, the middle of the 19th century, he found a place that was completely foreign to the aristocratic France that he left. But as America has acquired the 
inegalitarian, uh, aristocratic economic infrastructure of 18th century France, it doesn't have the rest of the cultural capital. People don't dress as elites. People don't know how to behave as elites. Is that the, the paradox of America, which makes it so intriguing and frustrating and so uh, interesting for sociologists and anthropologists like yourself? Gosh, that is a, oh, I really have to think about that one. That's really good. Um, I think you're onto something. One thing I would argue is that America has never had an aristocracy or a true upper class. Um, you know, I mean, of course, we've had our Vanderbilts and our Carnegies. But Even now, I mean, with, uh, you know, you you wrote an interesting piece about five ways to tell you're part of the aspirational <laughs> class. Isn't the aspirational class, the American aristocracy, they're, you know, they're two A words, but <laughs> they might not consider themselves an aristocracy, but they are. I Especially the way, and you teach at USC, which is... I want to get into the history of USC, but uh, the way in which uh, the elites are paying, sometimes illegally, to get their kids into these schools, which maintain their elite qualities. Well, I hope I can do no comment on that, but... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not blaming you for that one, Elizabeth. Um, but no, I, so here, here I think is the difference is, uh, you know, I think you're onto something in the sense that I think that our aspirational class or meritocracy is becoming an upper class. I think what I would argue is that for a long time, it felt very self-made, or at least there was the perception of it being self-made, you know, so you might call them upper middle class folks, but this wasn't like a birthright thing. What is happening increasingly because of the way in which class lines are so um, hard to cross uh, that they are becoming an upper class in the sense that they truly are becoming a, if you're born into a very wealthy top 1%, top 5% family, you're the one who gets to go to college. You're the one who gets to reinforce that social position. And we know from the data that being in the bottom 5%, um, you know, it's very, it's very unlikely to move up to the top 5% and, and vice versa. So I think you're right that that's becoming more solidified. I just don't think it was always the case. There was this sort of, myth of Horatio Alger that permeated and for a while sort of seemed to be true. We haven't used the C word yet, social class or class. Um, we, we discussed earlier, your, your husband is English. He was born in Wigan. Of course, Orwell wrote his great book, The Road to Wigan Pier, and was an expert on the English working class. Does this class that you write about, the overlooked Americans, do they have a sense to borrow a term of, of class consciousness? How do they think of themselves in terms of class? Or is, is that word a European word which simply doesn't apply to America? You know, you know you're, you've got some great questions and observations today. Um, I think only one woman used the word class when I spoke to her. She called herself lower middle class. But I will say, and, and their, the, their incomes varied, the folks I spoke to, um, from a woman who said to me that she needed $200 a week to live. And this was for every expense. So this is obviously a woman really kind of getting by. And um, a, a $218 to be exact. 
and um and 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 folks who were doing very well very comfortably middle upper middle class folks just living in rural america i don't think class consciousness is as much of a thing and i hadn't really thought about it until you asked that question but now that i'm thinking about my interviews it it's they are they socially organize themselves differently and in fact one of the things one of the reasons i think this is the case is that rural america is much more overtly religious as a whole. Mm. And um, the center of community life is the church. And churches tend to be egalitarian. You know, I mean, there's the mayors there and the sheriff and the, the man who owns the newspaper agent and the, the school teacher and, you know, the guy who works at the factory. And they're all there in the same place. So it's not a place of division. It's a place of cohesion. But uh, Elizabeth, you, the, the, the cover of your book is an idealized version of the small town. We've done a lot of shows also on religion, on, on the evangelical movement. Religion has changed as well. I mean, America is not um, that old version of, of, of small town America that so many visitors and analysts have fetishized for one reason or another. It's changing as well. What did your research and your... And, and the overlooked Americans, what does it suggest about changes in this world, especially when it comes to religion and the evangelical movement? And, and I'm throwing in something else, of course, which is a huge issue, the issue of racial identity and, 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 and whiteness. Um, so I think with regard to religion, one of the things that was really interesting was that that when I spoke to people, so the qualitative part of my research, the rural folks I spoke to were so much more overtly religious. You know, they talked about God a lot, their relationship to God, how God was most important to them. They would go to church a lot. They would talk about the church being a center of community. And yet when you look at the data, and I, I spoke to urban folks too, and I also live in an urban environment. And so that was a really kind of uh, an interesting contrast for me because I thought to myself, wow, I, I don't know, I don't have a single friend who talks about their relationship with God. In fact, I'm not sure I know what their relationship is. And they might be Jewish, they might be Catholic, they might be Protestant. I mean, I know that their, cult, their cultural affiliation, but in terms of their relationship to God, um, I didn't know anything. And yet these rural folks who I didn't know at all, I knew an awful lot about their relationship. Then I looked at the general social survey from the University of Chicago and I looked at uh, spirituality and, religi and, and religion. And you see that the urban and rural folks respond the same way. So you don't have a significantly more, a significantly greater population of, of religious folks in rural America than urban America. They're not even significantly more likely to pray um, and they, they all have largely the same belief that they can have a relationship to God without a religious institution. Um, and I thought, well, that's really interesting because when you press them, they have this response that's quite homogeneous. But in reality, it was the urban, the rural folks who were so um, open um, to talk about religion with me. And I, I had a number of different you know, hypotheses as to why, but that was the kind of broad finding. So the, this shift towards a, what some people call an, an evangelical 
Christian fundamentalism, which is financing and driving a lot of the the right wing of the Republican Party. You just didn't see this in your research, or you think it it is itself another invention of the coastal elite? Oh, I don't think it's an invention. I um, I mean, it, it is perhaps the truth that the reason that rural folks were more overt had to do with their evangelical um, religion. I mean, there would be more evangelicals in rural America. But I I don't know. Um, I, I, it's, a tr- it's a tricky one because another hypothesis I have is that religion was so central to their communities and so central to their cultural capital that that was why they were so much more at ease with talking about it. Whereas if you live in a city, you might go to church, you might not, you might go once a month or when it's Easter, but you also go to museums and, and um, the opera and, you know, uh, all sorts of things that urban life offers you. And so it becomes sort of more diluted in terms of your sense of identity. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, we've had Catherine Stewart on the show a couple of times, who's done a lot of work in this area. It'd be interesting to get you on the show with her. And what about the issue of, of race? Is rural America, it's again a, a cliche, Elizabeth, but is rural America essentially white? Or, or, or are those racial observations themselves inaccurate? I think parts of rural America are very white, for sure. I think in the South, it's more complicated. It's it's more diverse in the South um, and, and the same for the coastal West. Um, I think a lot of the parts like the Midwest um, are, are becoming more diverse, but have been predominantly white. Um, one thing that was really interesting is despite um, the more homogeneous population and also despite the... Um, kind of stereotype of rural America being racist. Uh, I didn't in my interviews get any sense of that at all, like any sense. Um, I had, there was more pushback to marriage equality than there was to issues of equality around race and ethnicity. Um, and when you look at the general social survey, you see- the You same keep on thing. referring to this. What, what is a general, what does that mean? <laughs> so the general social survey is this, uh, for the University of Chicago for- the last several decades, more than that, actually, probably 50, 60 years, has been surveying Americans about a wide variety of different things. Their views on the environment, whether they're happy in their marriage, um, you know, what, how they feel about, um, you know, social policy of any, you know, myriad different kinds. And they, you can cut the data. You can cut it by geography, by race, by class, and so forth. And so it's become a really an important part of my understanding of America because it allows me to look, you know, okay, these folks are saying X to me. Are they also saying that in their survey data, which is much more anonymous? So are they, you know, there's always a worry as an interviewer that people tell you what you want to hear or they, or they don't tell you the truth. They want to say something inflammatory. You know, you never know the truth. Now I, I feel there was such a consistency that the people I spoke to were truthful, but the GSS was, was a nice corroboration for me because it really did align with what I heard from folks. I'd be curious. I don't know whether you've done any research on this or whether other people's have. Do you, do you think you would find, for example, in the South, in a place like Mississippi, where a lot of the people living in the rural area are also black, that the values, um, what you call the cultural capital of 
white rural Americans and black rural Americans, or for that matter, his, Hispanic rural Americans, that they all have more in common than with the people in the cities. <coughs> so I think the South is tough because it's the one place that is consistently at a great disadvantage. And so it's very hard to... It's a big place, though, Elizabeth. You can't just yeah. write that one off. Of course. No, of course. Um, <coughs> but the, the the sort of data, when it's organized, you know, when you look at the regional data on the South, particularly the Deep South, you see a much more depressed socioeconomic place than, say, coastal New England, right? Um, I think to get back to your question, though... I think the answer is, of course, their experience is not the same. But I think that as Americans, and, and maybe dare I extend it as humans, there is a lot in common. I, if you sit down and say, what do you care about most in the world? Most people say they're family. Um, people really care about, um, you know, holidays. And they are largely quite happy, despite... Um, conditions um, that would be adverse and difficult. Uh, people believe in the concept of democracy, even if they're not thrilled with how the government is being run. I never got a sense that Americans were angry with other Americans. I think that they were angry with where we were as a country. So, you know, I think the answer is in, in broad brushstrokes, I think you'd see commonalities. And then, of course, everyone's lived experience is quite different. And so that's where things get complicated. Your thesis is obviously quite controversial. Um, the Kirkus loved it, gave it a starred review. Some of the, uh, the, the other early review I had on Slate suggested that you were, and I'm quoting the headline, condescending to our country cousins. I think the, the review suggested that it was a, a degree of wishful thinking. One thing that comes to mind to me is, is how would you explain then, uh, you know, I take your point, maybe it's all exaggerated, but how would you explain the enormous strength of Republicans and um, the MAGA movement and Trump in rural America? Um, because that is a movement of anger. That is a movement of overt cultural resentment. Uh, is this something that, again, the coastal elites and the Democratic Party have misunderstood, Elizabeth? I think we have attributed it to too many people. You know, not every Democrat is a progressive and not every Republican is a far right, you know, angry wanting, wanting to stick it to the Dems. I, it's, that's the problem. It's not, these, this is not untrue that these people exist in the world. And it's, it's, it's just, it, of course it's true. It's just, it's not everyone. I mean, there, there's, a, there's data out there and it's not mine. Um, I think the book is, called Why We're Divided. I, I need to look it up because I've been talking about it quite a bit with people. Um, I mean, they find that like 80% of people are moderate. The thing is that the 20% that aren't, they're, they're the loudest. They draw the greatest attention. They're the squeaky wheels. And then they become the story, but they're not the story of most people. So yes, is there a drumbeat of Trump support that isn't just simply, I voted for Trump because I'm Republican, but actually I, I vote for him because he he represents everything I, I believe about this country and I'm angry at this country and I feel left behind. Of course, those people exist. Of course they do. But we just can't take the tale and say that's that country because it's not.
Did you ask them about the Pride Boys, January 6th, Trump? Did you talk much about that in your conversation? We talked about Trump as he came up. Um, and I think there was one interviewer or interviewee who, who was open about her support of Trump and conspiracy theories um, around um, why he didn't get elected again. Um, but most people didn't feel that passionately about it. I mean, some of them voted for Trump once, some voted for Trump twice, some didn't vote for Trump at all. Something some thought he did fine, others thought he did terribly. I mean, you know, it was it was not uh, you know, I tend to with all of my interviews, um, I let them direct me. So, you know, I, I have my series of questions, but you start to find out after you've done a few of these interviews what people really want to talk about. And that wasn't one of the things people really wanted to talk about. Well, finally, Elizabeth, uh, I'm guessing that the majority uh, of our audience are from outside the countryside. They are the, the coastal elites of one kind or another, globally or in the United States. What message would you give them about the overlooked Americans? How are we going to reestablish some degree of consensus and civility in America? It's a an endless subject of controversy. What does your book, The Overlooked Americans, suggest about remaking America to make it a more civil place? Well, I have to say, as a fellow coastal elite, I mean, <laughs> I live in Los Angeles. I drink a lot of almond lattes. <laughs> I have a PhD from an Ivy League, so I get it. <laughs> um, I will say, I think that people don't want to feel looked down upon. Like none of us do. I, I think actually, if you think about being a human being in the world and how you want to be treated, I know this sounds so trite and just forgive me because you're English and I, my husband would like his eyes would be rolling up to heaven right now. But, you know, I think just think about how you would want to be treated as a, as a voter, as a human being. I, you don't want to be sneered at. You don't want people to tell you what you care about doesn't matter. Um, I think it's really important. And I think, you know, there's a term, you know, we use the term flyover states. Like, what does it feel like to live in one of those states and know people think that about you? Um, that's, that's, that feels terrible, you know? So I think, it, you know, if we're wondering, like, why, why didn't, you know, rural Americans vote for Hillary Clinton? I mean, I voted for Hillary. I'm a big fan of hers. But if you call people a basket of deplorables and you're kind of talking broadly drawn about a, people who live in this part of the world they're not going to vote for you. <laughs> so I think that would be my message is just to try to understand people on their own terms, probably not, you know, acknowledge that their cultural capital is different, but try to understand it more and appreciate it because it might be interesting. You might learn something. Um, that would be my advice. <laughs> well, I guess the fix is in the title, the overlooked Americans. Stop overlooking them. That's what you're saying, Elizabeth, yeah. right? Start listening. 